I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. start this podcast with a question. How many new bands have you discovered while listening to Livewire? How many new authors? Well, we hope a lot. We know it's been a lot for us. And not that you can assign a value to the beauty of music or to the gorgeously turned phrase, but, well, we're kind of asking you to. If you think Livewire has brought something into your life, please consider visiting our website at livewireradio.org and clicking on the donate button. And thanks so much for listening. This is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. And I'm Michelle Norris. Uh, You mean Michelle Norris. No, it's Michelle. Still sticking with that, huh? Okay. Then I'm Robert Siegel. Don't be a jerk. Thank you for joining us for another extra edition of All Things Considered. Uh, As a result of a class action suit brought by our listeners charging the show with false advertising, we were ordered to either change the show's name to Almost All Things Considered, or Some Things Considered, or increase our airtime as a good faith gesture that we're really trying to consider all things. Our producers chose the latter. So here now are some things we have yet to consider. Uh, The lilies of the field. My wife's feelings. I might look more virile with a hairpiece. If I'm driving my car when the rapture occurs and my suddenly driverless vehicle strikes and kills a pedestrian and ignorant of the event I neglect to ask for forgiveness, uh, will I then go to hell? When people who constantly say, you know what I'm saying, you know what I'm saying, talk to themselves, do they constantly say, do I know what I'm saying? (laughs) And what's the deal with Barry Manilow's face? Did he melt, then coagulate? (laughs) Michelle, who would you rather, Garrison Keillor or Carl Castle? I rather what? Uh, you know what I mean. Who would you rather consider? I mean, considering. Considering what? Well, considering what each of them has to offer. I don't like where this is going, Siegel. Have you considered leaving? You should consider leaving. No. 
It's not on my list. List of what? Of things to consider. This is absurd. No, it's not. Really? Then what is it? It's... It's... Hi, I'm Courtney Hameister, and welcome to LiveWire Radio's Last Look at a few of our favorite moments from 2010. That was Tyler Hughes as Robert Siegel and Rita Parrish as Michelle Norris. Some of our least favorite moments from 2010 were the not-so-great recession, not a fan of that, a little oil spill that happened off the Gulf Coast, and the 33 Chilean miners getting trapped underground for over two months. That sucked. Which then turned into, though, 33 of our favorite moments when each of them emerged. So... That was a, you know, bad thing, good thing. Tonight you'll hear some highlights from LiveWire's 2010, like sculptor and puppeteer Michael Curry, musician and prolific tweeter John Roderick, and author and anti-tweeter Steve Almond. Starting off the night is a great musical moment from the show. It was a band visiting us from northern Michigan. They treated us to a song from their most recent record, Magic Central. They were called A Wild Rumpus of Harmony and Rhythm by Paste Magazine. This is Breathe I'll Breathe. This city's alive. Put this little light to you. 
Livewire Radio offering up comedy, music, and conversation in deliciously digestible bursts. We'll be right back after this short break. Our next guest is one of the world's preeminent costume designers slash sculptor slash master puppeteers. As you well know, there are a lot of those around, and he's really one of the best ones. So we got him. We're pretty proud. He created the award-winning full-body puppets for Julie Taymor's production of The Lion King, and he recently worked with her on the now infamous, unfortunate accident-ridden production of Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark on Broadway. He joined us in June before that show went up and had some great things to say about creativity and commerce. This is Michael Curry. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your family history, that you come from a long line of innovators. You're, can, you, can you talk about your grandfather a little bit? My grandfather was a um, repaired logging equipment here in Oregon, but he was an inventor and worked his entire life uh, perfecting a perpetual motion marine engine uh, and had no success, no real success, but it, I watched him for... Uh, 25 years working on this thing and in fact would be invited to help his launches at seven years old we would go out in these boats and 
they don't work, so you would have to row back. And I was the only child, the only grandson, the only relative would ever go with him again. But it... it it proved to me that it was, it was okay to pursue a dream. Yeah, so. Well, it's interesting that you were the only one who would go with him because you've, you've, you're the one who's turned into this great innovator. Was, what was it about that experience? Do you think that that inspired you in some way? Oh, I, I'm sure it did in that, in that um, work without the usual results and the usual acclaim is okay. When you go into the arts, you, you do much better when you don't consider success. You consider, you consider the process. Wow. Yeah. So just to talk, you were a sculptor in New York, um, and my understanding is that your kind of big break, your big business break came from Siegfried and Roy. Mm -hmm. Is that true? How did that happen? Um, John Napier, the designer of, of... of Phantom of the Opera, Les Mis, uh, and Starlight Express was really hot in the early 80s. And I did a, uh, I made a costume. I was a professional sculptor painter having moderate success in New York City, but I loved costuming and I built a pterodactyl costume and marched in the Greenwich Village, East Village um, Halloween parade, which is a huge counterculture event with 35,000 people in costume. And I wore this pterodactyl costume for 14 hours and I was spotted by one of John Napier's assistants who had been trying to configure a, an evil queen, a winged diva for the Siegfried and Reusche, who are German-born magicians in Las Vegas. And he saw in my wings, on my pterodactyl, this thing, and so I was invited to a, his studio. I didn't know who he was. I hadn't seen Broadway shows. I was a yeah. fine artist. And uh, I... I met, I met him, and all, they had all these drawing tables with drawings of wings and things, and I knew exactly how to do all of them, and left there with a, a quarter-million-dollar contract and invited all my artist friends, saying, we're in the, we're in the theater business. And, and from then, it's been a sort of a pinball game of, you know, sort of things going back and forth. And it was the medium that found me, rather than me finding the medium. My, my sculpture on stage is far better than the gallery, yeah. Well, you, you talk about how you, you've motorized some of your costumes, but for you, it's watching them on the human body. And so you hadn't really thought of that prior to, to meeting this man, you, mo- putting your sculptures into movement. No, but I had for years been watching my sculptures sitting there in the room lacking something. Mm-hmm. And it was movement. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and then, and so I think, I think probably the biggest show was The Lion King uh, to date. Certainly not the largest scale necessarily, because your show, the shows that you've worked on, are incredibly large scale. But so you started working with Julie Taymor. What was it like? Sculpture is a very singular pursuit, generally. What was it like for you to start collaborating with people? Much better because many fine artists don't know this, but they're by being alone in a room contemplating the intellectual process of being a fine artist, you, you become very lonely and dark. When I invite fine artists to come work with me, they often make a breakthrough that collaboration, the sounding board that others provide you with, is, is, is exponentially greater than two people. It's, it's the summation of ideas coming together. So what I found was a community of people that made me very happy, interactive, always joyous, um, left to myself, I found myself in a sort of a dark world. I, like most fine artists, I wanted to be very intellectually profound and 
And, uh, you know, I drank. I did everything you're supposed to do. And, uh, <laughs> but when I finally started working with the six or eight people that are the usual team in theater, I found and a story to tell, a clear story, a premeditated story. Instead of the story developing during the process of making a painting, I went forward with a concept, and I could easily flex that those fences, those boundaries actually provided me a freedom within it that I think people in fine, artists, fine arts or musicians who go into musical theater, they find something that allows the predetermined activity, the predetermined story that you're meant to tell, allows you to blossom in a strange way and allows you to speak in a mature voice that might have been amateur otherwise. Well, and you did have a clear vision. How was it for you to impart that vision to the people working on your team? And did you, was, was, that, was it easy to immediately just be in collaborating and taking input and incorporating into your own ideas? It was for me because it was meant to be for me. And so I was always, a, I was always the, you know, the class president or the head of the, my group, or I was the one pushed forward to talk to the police when they came. And... <laughs> And so I've always been the sort of leader, and it's, it's a sort of paternal thing. And people that lead teams of artists tend to be that person. I just, you know, to be a sort of a good shepherd of these very strange flock. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And it's not, it's not something that you see a lot in the creative world, actually. Generally, creative people have difficulty leading. They're, so. they're shy, and yeah. that's why they're artists. They think that they can go hide behind that. And I, I speak a lot about that, and I, I urge artists to to speak with their chin up, their chest out, and ask for the money. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Um, So these these costumes that you create, um, many of them are motorized. Uh, They're stunningly beautiful pieces of art, but they're also really intricately designed. How much do you feel that you are a creative artist, and how much do you feel like you're an engineer? Well, they both have a function. Um, If my things don't have a function practically, they won't ever end up on stage. So our specialty is lightweight, comfort, and scale. Uh, we, we, we work in titanium and carbon fiber, things that you would think aircraft builders would use. But when done right, it makes the effort so minimal to the performer that they, they are themselves. They, they are not restricted. So that's very important. They, they serve both things. There are plenty of good engineers and robot builders, but they don't have much of a sense of sculpture or aesthetic. And to blend that, and I speak about aesthetic first, and I find the function in engineering to support that aesthetic. So I speak a lot to engineers about starting from the outside. What do you want your audience to see? And strip away that and see what's inside. Don't start with a foundation and then just apply all the practical layers on. And then you have, you have a generic schmaltz. Right. And how much, how much are the da- are actual dancers or actors a part of that process for you when you're creating those? Huge. It's a collaboration. I finish the product and then I give it to you and you give it another life. This is what was exciting about leaving the gallery. When they were done to me, these pieces were dead to me. Whether you sold them or not is even worse because then they went away. Uh, in theater, I give you a piece and, and you might take it and start doing something and I'll say, no, 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 holy, do that again. And I find another life for it. And they themselves, it extends their performance generally. I never give you anything that you don't need. If it takes away from the core performance of the story... We don't do it. That's the beauty of a show like The Lion King. We only minimally symbolize the animals. We let it be told through human voice. 
Yeah, and the animals, the, the, a lot of the heads were on top of their heads, yeah. and they the, moved. The human body is more important than my elements for me, and so I think that's been the success of it. I don't supersede the emotion and the quality of live theater. I mean, there's a good, a good analogy is why we're watching live theater here, because it's why we are watching live radio. It's exciting, <clears throat> and in today's society, where we see most things recreated on monitor, the palpable energy of being in a live audience is making theater actually becoming more popular. Theater is not in danger of dying. It's actually a, a, the new experience is somebody in the audience saying, this is really happening. Right, right now, yeah. in front of us. And it's shocking. It's a new special effect. <laughs> right. Right. So do you, the work that you do is so incredibly complex and, and challenging. Ha, has there ever been a project for you where you thought that you could do something and it turned out it just wasn't possible? My big challenge has been, honestly, trying to find a medium, a, a story, a, a look, one image that can touch all people, the highs and lows of culture, um, Internationally, so we stri- I strive a great deal in trying to find that common verb. Uh, this is, I mean, because you've you've worked with Olympic opening ceremonies quite a bit, so that seems like a an issue that you would absolutely have. Literally, you are trying to design for the entire world. Some of the pieces that you do are, are such large scale. Um, there was a huge uh, elephant that you did. Um, I think that was for the 2002 Olympic Games. I've done seven elephants. I just finished one last week. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so how does that process begin for you? If I come to you and I say, I need a gigantic elephant, I, yeah, go. I, I, I ask you a great deal about what the story is, and I ask to hear the music, and um, I need to know all the sort of detritus that surrounds that elephant. And then, and then in, the image generally comes to me very early in the process. The very early, what I call the golden minute, is really important. So I, I have face-to-faces with the director, and they speak... And um, there's a sort of autokinetic quality that comes out where I, I, I can start seeing the image and I, we start sketching. So um, I wanted to ch- just talk briefly about um, the project that you're current, or one of the bazillion projects that you're currently working on, uh, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark Broadway show, Broadway musical. It's, it's another project with, with Julie Taymor. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and music by U2, the, the, the band U2 wrote. That's not impressive to me. Yeah. I don't know why you think that would be impressive. Yeah, we, we are, even... It's funny because it's the best of Broadway the, the designers, but we're so infatuated with U2. Every time, <laughs> every time they walk in the room, you, you, everybody stops thinking. But it's, uh, they wrote 13 songs, and it's a very rock and roll, circusy Broadway musical. Julie's done a great job. Um, it's uh, it's going to be fascinating. Same design team as Lion King, but cranked up yeah, nice. with the music. Yeah. So when you work in essentially kind of design Disneyland, what do you do for fun? And what do you do to inspire yourself? You know, it's funny. I still sculpt for fun. I sculpt chainsaw sculptures on wood, as an Oregonian guy would do. And they're... <laughs> They're like haikus. I do, a, I do a block of wood that I can do in one session, and I get real physical, and I, uh, I, I use four or five chainsaws, and that's what I do. I ride motorcycles in the woods. I, I have a family that I love, and I play music. I'm an amateur musician. All things seem to be ten, tend to be creative things, and I'm real juiced about that. I'm, kind of, I'm very ADD. I have to move between sound and movement and 
all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And possibly type A. I'm just going to say that, yeah. but that might be true. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's been wonderful having you on. We're so glad that you finally came on to join us. Okay. Thanks. It's yeah, a it's pleasure fabulous. to be here. That was Master Puppeteer Michael Curry, and you're listening to Highlights of 2010 on Livewire Radio. Next up, tired of using exclamation points to make your emails appear more friendly? Well, do we have the punctuation mark for you? Thought you were excited at the birth of the questclamation point? This is the friendly period. An open letter to the person in charge of punctuation. I have invented a new punctuation mark, and I am writing to ask you to consider introducing its usage into the American punctuation lexicon. I would also like to check up on the status of the interrobang, also known as the questclamation point. You may not remember it, but it was the combination exclamation point question mark invented by ad executive Martin Spector, to help us with such sentences as, what did you just say to me? And Lindsay Lohan suing who? Over what? (laughs) The fact that it was invented in 1962 and you're still considering it doesn't give me much hope for it, or for that matter, the irony mark or snark, the backwards question mark that some are hoping can indicate sarcasm in our increasingly digital world. I think it sounds like a great idea. Whoever thought of it is a genius. But on to my idea. Get ready for it. The friendly period! Exclamation point! Sorry, what I meant was the friendly period. Am I talking about an era of increased kindness? No. A new, more pleasant brand of menstruation? That will never happen. (laughs) I'm talking about a period that says, that sentence, the one right before me, is as affable as they come. That sentence, in fact wants to buy you a beer. (laughs) Here's the problem. Increasingly, we're using really cold technological ways to communicate. No one wants to actually go through the long, drawn-out process of saying hello and how are you on the phone, or God forbid, having to see someone in person. There are germs in every handshake, and people get bad haircuts that you have to lie about. So emails and texts have become, for many, our primary means of communication. But reading something on a screen makes everything colder. So we try to warm up our communications with annoying emoticons, or in my case, the gratuitous exclamation point. In a study entitled, Gender and the Use of Exclamation Points in Computer-Mediated Communication, for reals, that's a real one, Carol Wasilewski deciphered that women use exclamation points far more often than men in e-communication. But it's not because we're more excited than men. Women use exclamation points online as indicators of a friendly interaction. We've been socialized to try to make people feel comfortable and to keep the peace. Hence, sentences like, Bill, I can't wait to see the fourth quarter TCI report on the new 12-gauge ball bearings, exclamation point. (laughs) She's not excited to see that report. No one is excited to see that report. She's letting Bill know that she's not angry that it's late yet. When she's angry, she'll use a period. (laughs) Now, I used to abhor exclamation points, largely because I'm not a perky person. I'm a person who assumes a day is going to blow until the world convinces me otherwise in the first five minutes by handing me a 16-ounce skim half-calf mocha in bed, which never happens, so you do the math. 
So you can imagine my increased usage of exclamation points has proved to be extremely disconcerting, both for me and for those who are forced to endure my emails and texts. A sample sentence from a recent email. Yay! Exclamation point. Dinner at McFutternutter's sounds great! Exclamation point. In this case, the exclamation points are preventive because the person receiving the email knows that I can be a sarcastic Periods would have made it read, Yay. Dinner at McFutternutter sounds great. I just hope their never-ending salad bowl will fill the bottomless pit of despair I feel because I'm sitting in an establishment called McFutternutter's. <laughs> now, what you might say is, Hey, why don't you stop being a sarcastic bitch in Tarabang? Good exclamated question. Answer, because I don't want to, friendly period. The friendly period would solve all of our problems. Picture this. It's a larger, slightly squished period that's big enough to see that there's a little half moon of a smile three quarters of the way down its jolly little round body. It's simple. It's not nearly as annoying as those bright yellow happy faces. And it's stylish. Because what's more stylish than black and white? Nothing stupid, friendly period. I implore you, punctuation person, don't make us wait 48 years for the friendly period to take off, friendly period. We need help now in getting rid of the scourge of gratuitous exclamation points, and I, for one, would have significantly less punctuation shame in my life. Please get back to me at your earliest convenience, friendly period. Our future depends on it. Irony mark. Sincerely, Courtney Hameister. That was... Me, and this is also me, host Courtney Haumeister, and you're still listening to Livewire Radio, and thank you for doing so. John Roderick, the man behind the Seattle band The Long Winters, is always a pleasure to have on. It's not just that he fronts a great band, he's also a rarity among independent musicians. He actually likes to talk. He's also a prolific tweeter. In fact, John's tweets were so funny and incisive that writer and independent publisher Matthew Stadler of Publication Studio decided to print 365 of them in a book, Electric Aphorisms. Here's John Roderick with a solo version of Long Winter's song, Ultimatum. called Ultimatum. Student, why do you dream of me when you dream of your acre of trees? It was agreed I came to burn leaves. It's all I ever claimed to do. Plowman, I'll never grow into. My arms miss you, my hands miss you. The stars sing, I've got their song in my hand. wish that I could take it when you turn on me. My arms miss you, my hands miss you. The stars sing, I 
seeing you as long as you don't say you're falling in Sasquatch. I was, uh, just a couple of days ago. Yeah, and it's interesting because I do read, I read your blog posts, I read your tweets, and you come off, and I don't think you'll be surprised to hear this, as, as a bit of a misanthrope, I would say. Really? <laughs> it's really in small doses that I don't like people, but in big, large instances where people have paid money to see me, I find them imminently charming. Actually, I have one of your tweets uh, from Sasquatch. We're at Sasquatch today. The backstage area looks like the Ellensburg Community Theater held an open casting call for the musical Hair. Well, you may have noticed, and I, I don't, I'm not telling Portland or Oregon anything you don't already know, but the fashion for men has gotten a little squirrely lately. And by squirrely, I mean actually looking like a squirrel. <laughs> And so the backstage of Sasquatch is just like, it was absolutely ground zero for like skinny dudes in girls' jeans with long beards and plenty of hair, but still in a kind of comb-over pattern, inexplicably. Like, the comb-over is a technology for people who don't have hair, and it's being misused, I think. By some hairy, hairy little guys. <laughs> well, speaking of that, actually, 
you you recently shaved your beard, and I feel like it's a cry for help because no, those of us in the Northwest are wondering. I mean, are, can, will you still be able to play music? Can I am making create? a stand for civilization against a tide of of uh, of like uh, chaos. I, I you know I rode the train down here from Seattle today, and yeah, thank you, uh, thank you Amtrak employee that I invited to the show. One. <laughs> And, uh, and the train broke down in Vancouver, Washington. Yeah, that's their Vancouver posse here. Uh, the train broke down, and, uh, and the, the 150 people on the train trying to navigate this crisis of being in Vancouver, of, you know, 15 minutes from their de- destination, uh, it, it blew my mind. It seems, like the, it seems like the standard of decorum, where one can claim to be like a civilized person, it's just that you're not actively throwing your feces at, at the people around you. Like, that's where we're at now. If you're, not act, if you're not actually sliming people, then you're, like, behaving in a sort of Emily Post kind of authorized way now. Um, let's just briefly talk about your book, because I want people to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a, it's a, great, it's a great book. Um, it's Electric Aphorisms is the, is the title of the book. It's another um, way to appreciate me where I don't have to interact with you and I get money. <laughs> um, and it is. It's, it's, just, it's a book of your tweets over the course of uh, six months, I would say. Yeah. Right around there. Yeah. And, and it's, it, it's an annoyance, I think. A lot of people think it's sort of an annoyance, but, but I think what I've heard from writers and comics is that it actually improves your writing. D- it, was that your experience of using it? You know, it's a form of writing if used as a form of writing. And when people tweet about what they ate six times a day, first of all, they're eating three times too many. <laughs> And, and second of all, it's terrible, right? That's, that's, Twitter should not do that. But, but if you take the opportunity to use 140 characters to write something, then it's just like any other uh, writing format. Or, or, except it's 140 characters. Right. So, yeah, I, 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 I took it as a challenge to have all my tweets actually be 140 characters exactly. Which, yes, ooh. <laughs> It, which is impressive. This is, this is a literary audience. Ooh. But what's, but what's frustrating to other Twitter users is that if you really love a tweet, if you think it's fantastic, which the majority of your tweets are, I'll just say that. Merci. Um, you you want to retweet it. But when, you, but when you tweet something, you have to leave about 20 characters or so left over so people can retweet you. So he really was, he was I, I lording thwart, over your that's followers. That's right. I thwart the social networking aspect of Twitter. If you like my tweet, appreciate it in silence. <laughs> Go to a place in your cave and think about it. And don't retweet it. Don't, it's not your content. <laughs> it, it, doesn't make, you. it doesn't make your Twitter feed more interesting. Uh, well, but it, you know for what? some people it does. <laughs> you know what? It's just, it, I'm just I'm, I'm peeing up a rope. <laughs> I'm standing athwart culture saying, stop! And uh, who was it that said that? Was that William F. Buckley? That's the only thing he and I have in common. (laughs) The book is Electric Aphorisms, and the record, the next record is coming out. Well, the next Long Winter's record has been out for a year and a half. I just didn't tell anybody about it. Mm -hmm. No, it's almost done. I'm working on it. If there are any Long Winter's fans listening, it's almost done. 
Okay. I just have to. Thank you. We'll look for it later in the year, longwinters.com. Longwinters.com. Yeah. Well, and you'll come back later in the show, and you're going to maybe sing another song for us. Thanks so much. John Roderick, everybody. That was Long Winter's frontman, John Roderick, on Livewire. Hey, remember in early 2010 when credit card regulations changed? Wasn't that crazy? That was a, that was a huge, that was not a big story. It's actually a story that you might have missed, but we didn't. This is Failure to Connect. On February 22, 2010, the Federal Reserve began implementing some important regulations for credit card companies. Some of these regulations target customer protections, and one wonders if credit card companies will really play fair. First Premier Credit Customer Service, what can I do for you today? Uh, yes, I'm having some issues with my credit statement here. Oh. Okay, okay. Uh, what's your name? Glenna Hayes. Hayes, H-A-Y-E-S. All right there, Glenna. I have your account right here in front of me. Uh, what's the problem? Well, first of all, it looks like you increased my interest rate there from 12% to 23%. Uh, yeah, we went ahead and did that. What is the problem? Aside from the fact that the increase is ridiculous, I was under the impression that because of new regulations, you had to send me notice 45 days in advance of any rate or fee increase. Uh, yeah, we did. No, you didn't. Yes, we did. I see right here in front of me a carrier pigeon was sent out over three months ago. Excuse me, did you say carrier pigeon? Uh, yes, ma'am. It says right here, Mookie the carrier pigeon was sent to your residence with notification that we were doubling your rates. I never got any carrier pigeon. You didn't? No. That's too bad. I guess he never made it. <laughs> yes! I love that little Mookie. Well, now, I don't think that's very fair. Okay, ma'am, what about the telegraph? What telegraph? Are you telling me you didn't receive the telegraph that we sent? No! Well, we very clearly beeped out to you on that telegraph that we were jacking up your rates over two months ago. I don't have a telegraph machine. Well, I really would have to insist that is your problem. My problem? That technology is over 100 years old. Jeez, this is absurd. Ma'am, please calm down. I won't have you disrespecting the telegraph or the good name of Mr. Samuel Morse. Why didn't you just call me, you know, or send me a letter in the mail, the real mail? Well, if we had sent you a letter... Would you have read it? Of course. Well, there you go. Can I help you with anything else, or... uh... What? Okay, there is something, but I'm not sure you'll be much to help. But my son's in college, and he just signed up for one of your credit cards. Oh, excellent. However, you gave him a $20,000 credit limit. I'm not sure at 18 he's ready to handle that kind of responsibility. Well... And aren't you prohibited from signing up students within a 1,000 yards of campus? Yes, ma'am, that is true. However, thanks to the small print, we can designate any college we want, so we went ahead and chose to be 1,000 yards away from Oxford University. Oxford? You mean in England? Yeah, we're way more than 1,000 yards away from that campus. You can go ahead and check. I'll wait. Oh, Wow. Okay. Well, how about this one, then? My new bill was supposed to include information on how long it would take me to pay off my balance if I only made minimum payments. Uh, Yeah, ma'am, it should be right there on the top of the statement. Well, what it says is, when the moon and Jupiter align (laughs) and all the children of the world unite in song atop the mountains of harmony... Exactly. I'm not sure how much more specific we can be on that one. I, uh... 
Okay, you know what? I'd like to cancel my credit card with this company. All right, ma'am, fair enough. That's your option if you choose to do so. All I need from you is your full cancellation request in the form of airplane skywriting above any one of our branch offices. You can't be serious. Yeah, and just make sure it's a clear day so we'll be able to see it. <laughs> Hello? Hello? That was Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, and Rita Parrish in Failure to Connect. That sketch also appeared on NPR's Marketplace. Next up, writer Steve Almond, author of Candy Freak and Not That You Asked, joined us for our Wordstock show last year, and it appears that he and I have a slightly different view when it comes to authors and social media. Take a listen. Dear Steve, why aren't you on Twitter? Susan Arlene is, and I found out all about her chickens on there. She might even get some llamas. I feel so much closer to her. You're missing out. Love, Courtney. Courtney, Susan Orlean has chickens? Oh my God. This is huge. As you are no doubt aware, I keep meticulous tabs on which farm animals are being raised by which New Yorker staff writers, but I've long pondered how I might instantaneously inform other New Yorker staff writer farm animal enthusiasts about these developments. Are you suggesting that such technology now exists? Please tell me more. No, really. Dear Steve, that's right. Mock me in my little Twitter feed. Or, better yet, mock Susan in all 80,481 of her book-loving, disposable income-having followers. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that 80,480 more followers than you have? I mean, you do still have that one guy who follows you around with a box of melted Mars bars offering you hot rock massages. Or did the restraining order finally go through? In any case, you're right. You don't need social media. I'll tell that to all my friends who keep posting your rumpus columns on Twitter. Dear Courtney, um, you say hot rock massages like it's something dirty when... In fact, it's something verifiably therapeutic that only turns dirty if I pay extra. (laughs) Still, I I see your point. If I can find a way to exploit this dynamic new social media platform, I will eventually earn thousands of wealthy followers who just happen to crave a reading experience that's limited to 140 characters. If I hone my craft, I may eventually work some of these folks up to whole paragraphs. Oh, it, it won't be easy, I know that, but an aging pornographer can always dream. It's, it's like Sarah Palin recently wrote on her own very literary Twitter feed. If Obama not Hitler, why he kill granny and eat bones in Oval Office voodoo ritual? <laughs> R-O-T-F-L-T-M-S-B-I-F. What's that mean? Roll on the floor laughing till my soul bursts into flames. Uh Dear Grandpa, if you're suggesting that Twitter shortens one's attention span, I have this to say to you, dear sir. OMG, Justin Bieber just posted pics of his pet rabbit, BRB. Court, I'm assuming BRB means be right, Bieber, but it could also mean bring you a righteous boner. Life is so mysterious. I sometimes think we're getting stupider and meaner and more frightened as a species and that all these electronic conversations are just ways of distracting us from that cold hiss of self-revelation. Of course, I smoke a lot of pot. And I once shoplifted a gel designed to numb the end of my penis. 
I did this so I could make love to my girlfriend for longer than 13 seconds. Was this a selfish motive or was I trying to enact good in the world? I have no idea anymore. Justin Bieber sounds like a very sensitive young man, even if he wears his hair like a lesbian. Your faithful correspondent, Steeber. Dear Steve, you're right. It's all a distraction, and I've been blind to it because I can't see past my screen. I think I'm connected to something real, to some one real, but it's just this digital simulacrum of a life where I don't have to think about the fact that I'm going to die alone because I have 1,400 friends who ostensibly prove otherwise. But when I look back on my real life, I'll just see myself alone with my laptop, sitting at various desks and couches with big gulp glasses full of Diet Dr. Pepper and quiet desperation. This is a big revelation, Steve. I have to go tweet about it or it's like it didn't happen. Oh, and regarding the gel, according to the law of ethical egoism, even the most selfless act is ultimately in our own self-interest. I read that on the Dalai Lama's Facebook page. Dear Dr. Courtney Pepper, I saw a weird picture of the Dalai Lama recently. He was on an exercise treadmill, one of those jobbers that sits in your basement gathering dust and guilt. It kind of freaked me out. I mean, why is the Dalai Lama on a treadmill? Shouldn't he be walking outside in, like, nature, feeling the sunshine on his noble skull and contemplating the pale green eucalyptus leaves? But there he was in his monk-slash-workout robe, pacing toward nowhere. Your note speaks to the same thing, the great moral stasis of our moment. You portrayed me as some kind of Kaczynski for not submitting to the adrenaline prod of Twitter but I assure you that I, too, spend too many hours staring at a screen and neglecting my loved ones. For example, right this minute, my darling infant son Judah is in the next room playing with kitchen knives. <laughs> They're not that well sharpened, but still. <laughs> my machines are supposed to make me feel useful, but I mostly use them to keep myself safe from the bad data of the world, all the suffering I know is out there and is somehow my responsibility, but that I feel helpless against. If I did have a Twitter feed, that's what my tweets would be about. Trying to write my novel, helpless. Tea party on the TV again, helpless. Judah bleeding all over floor, helpless. The good news, and there is good news, is that people are still feeling and still want those feelings known. They still need to touch and be touched by other people. Christine O'Donnell got that much right. Fear not, dear sweet Courtney. You are leading an actual life. You do not own chickens or rabbits, nor do you spend enough time contemplating eucalyptus leaves, but your hair does have its own Bieberish moments. And many people, including this entire audience, would be most delighted to give you a hug or at least poke you on Facebook. Your loyal follower, Steve. <laughs> Steve Almond, everybody. Thanks, Steve. You're listening to Livewire Radio. With music, conversation, and laughs, it's like a great date, but without the initial awkwardness and constant internal dialogue about whether or not you're going to end up doing it. <laughs> we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Livewire. Hey, uh, Mike, right? Yeah. Uh, Stan. Uh, Stan, right. Um, back again, huh? At the old unemployment line. Yep. Yes, sir. Having any luck? Nada, you? Nope. I suppose not. We're back in the unemployment line, after all. Yes, we are. We have to stop meeting like this. <laughs> yeah. Next. Slow line today, huh? I got nowhere else to be. Well, you won't see me around here anymore. My benefits are running out. Yeah, same here. No more extensions. It's not looking good. Heading for the poorhouse. <laughs> <laughs> At least the poorhouse is a house. I'm about to be homeless. <laughs> I wish I was joking. Yeah. Just trying not to cry in front of my kids. You know, I wish it was like the old days. Everybody had a job. Hunter. Yeah. Or um, a gatherer, right? Living off the land by your wits and the strength of your bare hands. You could even pick up a second job and be a hunter slash gatherer. Oh, those were the days. Yep. Yep. Who's watching? What in the hell... Are you seeing what I'm seeing? It's a googly-eyed little stack of money. You know, you know what that is? I, I read about that. It's the money you could have saved on your car insurance. No, no, it can't be. I, I got rid of my ride. Cash for clunkers. Well, it, it ain't mine. My Toyota accelerated through the back of my garage six months ago. So, you should grab it, right? I mean, grab that money. Really? I, sure, sure. We'll, we'll go splitsies. Go for it. Okay, let's do it. Hell yeah, come here, you! Oh, Christ, he's, he's fighting me! Help me out, Stan! Just kill it! Oh. Just kill the little bastard! I, I don't know how! How do I do it? I don't know! The eyes! Rip off the eyes! Oh. Here! Oh, oh God! Oh. 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 oh, my God! The blood! That's so much blood! There's a lot of blood! It's good, though, you know? It, this feels right. Yeah, I, I feel so alive. What do we, what do, we do now? Uh, I guess we should thank the great money spirit and honor the kill by using every dollar. I mean, what should we do about this mess? Oh, uh, gather up those bloody Google eyes. Okay. Uh, we can sell them to a doll maker or a puppeteer or something. Yeah, that's a great idea. Did anybody see what went down? Next in line, please. Nope, looks like we're good. Okay, well, now we'd better skin, gut, and divide the kill. Oh, no. Hey, oh, oh, my God. Bunch of change is spilling out. It's, it's, it's babies. It must have been a female. Oh, look, look, a 50-cent piece. Oh, cute. I'm your mommy now, little guy. You watch TV, Stan, right? These googly money things are popping up all over. You know what this means? We can be hunters, just like the old days. Next in line, please. Well, that's you, Stan. Shh, Mike, listen. It's coming from just outside. Oh. Probably by that boarded-up credit union. You know, if we hurry, we can track it. We can kill, harvest, yet another one of these suckers. You with me, Stan? Sir, next in line, sir. Uh, thanks anyways, ma'am. Uh, I'm okay. Uh, me too. We just got jobs. That's right. I'm a hunter. And I'm a gatherer. Mike? Yes, Dan. Let's go to work. Yeah! 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 
Normally at the end of each show, poet Scott Poole sums up what he's learned over the hour. It's a little segment we call What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. But this time around, he's done it for an entire year. So take a listen to poet Scott Poole. What I Learned This Year by Scott Poole. I learned what 2010 was all about. Well, it was kind of like... Ever lose your job? Fall into a deep despair and sickness? And because of a lack of health care and not knowing what else to do, you decide to drive to the ocean, dig a deep hole in the sand, and then jump straight down into it so only your head sticks out? You ever do that? You ever figure that the healing power of cold sand around your body might help? Hell, what does it matter? That's all you can afford anyway. And think, this is what life looks like for a soccer ball at ground level. And then you think, even a soccer ball was more employed this year than I was because of another thing you couldn't afford, the World Cup. And then just burst into really sad tears. Yeah, 2010 was kind of like that. 2010 was all about holes. Plugging holes, digging out of holes, crawling from holes, being in the holes, scanning the holes, A-holes, and holes of every shape, size, and conceptual reference. Ever dig yourself a hole at the beach, crawling up to your neck, and have it start filling up with crude oil, which spills out all over the beach, and everyone gets mad at you because the beach is packed with the unemployed, and you're ruining everyone's unemployment paradise, and people are throwing cold drinks and beach umbrellas and tiger woods at you, trying to staunch the flow, and despite all this, you end up destroying the entire Gulf Coast anyway, because oil is gushing everywhere, and at the same time, all sorts of Things are bubbling up from below. Oil, gas, Chilean miners, and wives of Chilean miners are hitting you on the head with their purses. And the girlfriends of Chilean miners are hitting you on the head with their purses. And Tiger Woods' girlfriends are hitting you on the head with interview requests. And everyone seems to be blaming you and having plenty of time to blame you and protest you and call you Hitler because they're out of work and they just have lots of free time and so many angry people are gathered together in one spot they decide to form a political party for angry people to bring more yelling to washington and they elect as their party's representative a woman whose biggest qualification is that she's not a witch and another whose greatest talent is quitting elective offices and making up words like refudiate So the media does the only sensible thing and begins every sentence for the next three months with The Democrats are posed for huge losses this fall. So you scream, stop, stop, stop all this junk. The junk shots, the grabbing of the junk, all of it. But the screaming attracts Somali pirates, a runaway Toyota Sienna, a car bomber, a guy who slides off, a jet blue blow-up kitty slide flipping the bird and drinking a beer and slides right into your face. Yes, that, I think, is a little bit like 2010. Don't you hate it when that happens? That was poet Scott Poole, with some help musically and vocally from Jim Brunberg. Well, that's it for 2010. We hope it was a good year for you and that 2011 blows it out of the water, good things wise. Our first live show for 2011 will be February 18th. To find out more about that show, visit livewireradio.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Courtney Hommeister, and this has been LiveWire 2010.
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 